Amen. Thank you to the choir. We are back in Romans 11. Romans 11, 11 to 32. We're not going to quite finish the chapter. I want to again thank Mitch for preaching last week, doing 11, 1 through 10. Uh, really a blessing to have someone who is a Jewish believer talk about being a Jewish believer. Uh, it's a lot easier, I think, a lot better to hear from Mitch talking about that than hearing from me. I did do an ancestry DNA test, Mitch, like you mentioned. I am 0% Jewish. No surprise, right? And here's the real big surprise. I'm 50% Korean. Can you imagine? So not a lot, not a lot to, uh, to add to what I probably already knew there. But we're looking at 11, 11 to 32. We're not going to quite finish the chapter, but we're really looking here at God's big plan for humanity. Right? It's good to have a plan, even have a big plan. I do have some plans for our family vacation this year. Um, hopefully my ankle will be healed up enough to, to really do this. But uh, later on this month, the plan is to go visit the Deep South. And usually when I tell people that, they say, why? <laughs> but in actuality, uh, then I say, well, we're going to go to New Orleans and then up to Natchez and then down to Gulfport, Biloxi area. People say, oh, okay, that makes sense. But I've never spent any time down in that part of the country. So I, I wanted us as a family to go and try that. So that's our plan for that. Well, what about bigger plans than that? Well, someday, maybe many, many years from today, I'll retire. My plan, my plan would be to get some serious acreage out in western United States and have a little retirement place that I could sort of will to my kids and grandkids and so forth. That's a plan. What about bigger plans than that? Uh, You think about plans for our country and where the future we're headed to is. Here we are, of course, on the 4th of July weekend. Today's the 3rd. Um, They had big plans when they signed the Declaration of Independence. You guys know when they decided to declare independence from Great Britain was. You know what date that was? Of course, it was 1776, July 2nd. (laughs) Do you guys know that? It was proclaimed, declared more publicly on the 4th of July. It was actually even signed on August 4th, 1776. Uh, But it was actually decided on the 2nd. In fact, John Adams, one of the signers, Uh, I think even to the day he died, wanted to maintain it was the second day of July that should be celebrated as Independence Day for the ages. But he did have the foresight that this would be an extraordinarily important date for the future of the world and really, of course, of our country. He wrote to his wife, Abigail, the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forever. More. So at least he had the foresight that this would be something big. He had plans for what this date would mean. Did you know that? Here's uh, the beautiful sort of irony of how uh, America works here. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who didn't always agree, but were the key sort of framers, um, both died on July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years 
after July 4th, 1776. James Monroe, one of the founding fathers, did not sign the Declaration of Independence, also died July 4th, 1831. And actually, one president of the United States was born on July 4th. That was Calvin Coolidge here from Massachusetts on July 4th, 1872. For those of you guys who enjoyed the fireworks here in Haverhill or whatever town you may be from, do you know when fireworks, the first time fireworks were used to celebrate Independence Day? July 4th, 1777. The very first anniversary in Philadelphia and on the Boston Common, fireworks were used to celebrate. And here they are. Here we are, how many hundreds of years later, still being used. And in 1781, Massachusetts, our state, of course, became the first state to make July 4th an official state holiday. Big plans for our country right from the outset. What about even bigger than that, though? What is the plan for humanity? Where are we headed? Look with me at Romans 11, 11 to 32. We'll have this up on the screen, or you can open your Bible. We read this. Paul, writing to the Romans, says this, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Meaning Israel. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. 
a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and study and receiving of his word this morning. This is, uh, this is meat here today, guys, okay? So just so you know, this is not an easy chapter to talk about. We're going to get down into some really meaty stuff, although sometimes that's good. I think it's good for our soul to, get, to go a little deeper. I was just talking to someone before the service who had uh, someone in their family watching online and uh, kind of newer to the faith and took this in and said I really, they really enjoyed it. So they liked getting a little bit more of a meaty section of Scripture here. But what we see is God's plan of salvation ends with mercy. It ends with mercy. Here's where we're going. We see in verses 11 to 16, God's plan is salvation offered to the world. Salvation offered to the world. 17 to 24, God's plan grafts Jew and Gentile together. And then 25 to 32, God's plan is mercy to all believers in time, eventually in time. So look first at 11 to 16, God's plan is salvation offered to the world. And he starts off this section saying, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Meaning, did Israel stumble in such a way that it's over for them? They're done. There's no future. There's no hope for those in Israel. And again, he gives that strongest negation by no means. Absolutely not. In fact, it's part of God's perfect plan Remember, God uses even our sin, our rebellion, our mistakes, our failures to work out his perfect will. It's rather their trespass brings salvation to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the rest of the world. In fact, Paul is saying, what I'm hoping happens with my ministry is it makes Israel jealous. I magnify my ministry. I want it to be seen and known by my fellow Jews, he says, because I want them to get jealous. Now, what is he talking about jealous? Jealous of the fact that even the Gentiles are enjoying the blessings of the gospel, of being reconciled to God, of enjoying fellowship with God, and the fellowship of the church and the presence of the Holy Spirit and his work among us and sanctification, that they see this and say, I want that. That was supposed to be for us. <laughs> That's what he wants them to see and that in time eventually save some. But he says, if their rejection meant salvation for the rest of the nations, getting offered to the rest of the world, what would their inclusion mean? What would it mean when they begin to actually receive the Messiah as their Savior and Lord? As he says later on, it would mean life from the dead. The end, right? The complete picture fulfilled in the end. And he offers 
uh, this illustration, verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, that's a reference back to the Torah, where you would offer to the Lord a grain offering, the first fruits of your grain. And you did that as a way of saying it all belongs to God, but I'm going to give him one-tenth, or one portion, to demonstrate that it's all his. Then the whole lump is holy. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. If Paul and all the apostles and really the whole church in Jerusalem receive the Messiah as Lord, that's how the whole thing began, then eventually God is going to use that to extend to the rest of Israel. Now, let's just take a second. What does it mean that their rejection leads to salvation for the rest of the world? I think he's just talking about historically. I mean, this is what happened. Or even if you look at theologically, how did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus came to his own people. Jesus was himself, of course, fully Jewish. Jesus barely even left Israel. He would only go on the outskirts, the Decapolis and uh, Samaria, just a few kind of related places. Almost his entire life was spent in Israel. And in the end, Jesus was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Yes, it was the Romans who killed him, but it was the Jewish leaders who handed Jesus over to the Romans to do what they themselves couldn't do. The Romans didn't really care either way, but they got their hands tied by the Jewish leaders saying, well, you have a guy claiming to be king. If you guys, as Romans, don't have a problem with that, isn't that treason against Caesar? And so they said, okay, we have to do something about it. And in doing so, Jesus dies as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus said, it's for this very hour that I came. I've come to die. The Son of Man comes to lay down his life as a ransom for many. His death was a necessary part of his work of salvation. And if we look at the resurrection, Jesus can't rise from the dead unless he first dies, right? Death is kind of a necessary prerequisite from coming back from the dead. The interesting thing about this is God said this is what's going to happen right from the beginning. Mitch mentioned Isaiah 53, and there's numerous prophecies explaining that the Messiah's coming would be one of rejection and atoning death. And because of that, a message goes out to the rest of the world saying, we have a Savior who has died in our place. Now you might say, well, what would have happened, Pastor Rick, if Israel did receive their Messiah? And he didn't get killed, and he didn't get handed over to the Romans. And what would have happened if they said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, we are going to follow you, we trust in you, we give our lives over to you? And the answer to that is, I have no idea. In fact, nobody has any idea. We're not told what would have been. There's a part in the Chronicles of Narnia that I love where Lucy, the main child character, disobeys Aslan and sets the whole party sort of in one direction and later comes to realize it. And she says to Aslan, basically, what if I had listened to you? Would none of all these bad things have happened? And Aslan's response is this, to know what would have happened, child, said Aslan. No, nobody is ever told that. In fact, when you look at the big picture of Scripture, again, there was no would have been. This was God's plan all along. Friends, what a thing to meditate on. Uh, Meditating on the cross, that Jesus is the rejected Messiah, and it could not have been otherwise. The plan was all along for him to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross as an atoning death. In fact, the whole sacrificial system played out for centuries and centuries in Israel and the temple was only a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. 
that this message was meant then to be proclaimed to the world, that reconciliation would be offered not just to Israel, but to everyone. Let's meditate on the providence of God and his plan. When you think about your own life, I mean, how many of us would wish we could go back and change something, right? A major mistake, a major decision that you made, a major sin that you committed that you say, I wish I could go back in time and change that. How my life would have been different if I had done that differently. And we're not told what would have been, only what is. We trust that God has his plan. And yes, he weaves even suffering and even sin into his purposes. I've said this before, but it's so helpful. I asked the question at Sunday school before, uh, adult Sunday school. I said, can God use our sin to work and, for his purposes? And one person said, if he doesn't, he can't work with any of us. Because right? that's all there is. If God doesn't work with our sin, how's he going to work with any of us? Our lives are filled with so many mistakes and failures and sins. And God weaves that into his purposes and plan. Meditate on our hope. Yes, for the time being... Israel rejected the Messiah for for the most part. There's always a remnant, as we talked about. And salvation gets offered to the world. But even as we speak, the fullness of the Gentiles are coming in. And eventually, the end will come and the resurrection will occur. Then he gives this olive tree illustration in 17 to 24. In 17 to 24. And this may have confused you a little bit, but basically he describes Israel... Now, not talking about the uh, people of Israel of the time, but its whole history, the covenants, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Torah, the sacrificial system, as an olive tree, as a cultivated olive tree. And that cultivated olive tree has branches, (laughs) of course. And those natural branches are Jewish believers in Jesus. They're part of the tree. But he mentions that some of those branches get broken off. Why? Because of unbelief. Sometimes, if anyone that's done any gardening knows this, if a branch is dying, it's hardened, it's decaying, you break it off for the good of the tree or the plant. And then he mentions that there are wild olive trees, which of course they had back then, and some of those branches get broken off of the wild olive tree and they get grafted in to the cultivated olive tree. I think in that illustration... The, natural, the wild olive branches are Gentile believers. You might ask the question, why would anyone ever graft a wild olive branch into a, a cultivated olive tree? It's a good question. I found the answer. <laughs> so, Sir William Ramsey did a study of, all, of uh, sort of this whole idea of grafting back in the first century. And this is what he came up with. Although it's uncommon, it is customary to reinvigorate an olive tree which is ceasing to bear fruit by grafting it with a shoot of the wild olive so that the sap of the tree ennobles the wild shoot and the tree then begins to bear fruit again. Is that not the perfect illustration? What does God do? He brings those who will bear fruit into the tree. Now notice what he says so carefully here though. Do not be proud. Do not boast. (laughs) You got blessed by being brought into the root, and you don't support the root. The root supports you. And not only that, if you can be grafted in as a wild olive shoot, 
Grafting is extremely difficult, doesn't always work, doesn't always take in real life. How much more so would a natural cultivated olive branch be grafted right back in? Friends, I think there's a a calling here, as he mentions a number of times in this section, to humility. Do not be proud, but fear. Uh, uh, Do not boast over the branches. As Mitch mentioned last week, part of the sad history of the Christian church is anti-Semitism. And so clearly in Scripture, anti-Semitism is anti-Christian. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work with us. There shouldn't have been any. Um, I do love Martin Luther, Mitch. But yes, he was dead wrong on this issue. Martin Luther, the great reformer who started the Reformation towards the end of his life, um, he so desperately wanted to see the Jews receive the Messiah, he grew frustrated and eventually ordered the burning of their synagogues and the exclusion of them. There's no place for that in the Christian life. Do not boast over the branches that were cut off. There's also been a sort of whole sort of line of thinking called replacement theology, which basically says this, that the church, the Christian church, has replaced Israel. So basically, if this would totally destroy the illustration, you have an olive tree, and then God says, I don't want that olive tree, and rejects the olive tree entirely and chooses a wild one and makes that his own. That's not what I just read. Right? We get grafted into the olive tree. That God doesn't reject his people ever. Or it's been said, if you look, changing the illustration, God only has one bride. God never rejects his bride and marries another. He has one people. We just get brought in. And there's a certain humility that comes with that. A certain gratitude in saying, God, you chose me to be part of your perfect plan. Now, it, it, again, God is sovereign. I'm not an afterthought. It's part of his plan all along, but I get the blessing of a spiritual heritage that I read about all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Like I said, I have no uh, ancestral lineage, lineage to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have no ancestral lineage to Moses or to uh, David or Samuel, as far as I know, but they are my spiritual heritage, right? When I read about them in the Old Testament as fellow believers, I learn from them. I grow from them. These were written down to the, for those to whom the fullness of the ages have come. It becomes my history as well. Friends, there should be a certain humility. There's no boasting. There's no pride. And just as a reminder, how much more naturally do the natural branches fit right back in? I saw this a little bit. As I mentioned last week, I was at the Chosen People Ministries uh, event. Chosen People Ministries, a ministry to... Um, uh, the Jewish people, reaching them, and they had a breakout year last year. Uh, we see, there's more people who believe, more Jewish people believing in the Lord Jesus today than at any time in the history of the church in 2,000 years. Um, pretty amazing. But listening, I told you this to, this to Mitch afterwards, to the Hebrew prayers, but directed specifically to the Messiah, Jesus, it fit like a glove perfectly. The natural branches fit perfectly right back into the root. Jesus himself, of course, celebrated Sabbath every week. He ate from the food laws. He celebrated Hanukkah and Yom Kippur and uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah, all of the Jewish holidays. He grew up in a Jewish home. 
how much, how much more naturally the, nat- the branches come right back in. God is gracious. He calls us to humility. He calls us to recognize that it is a gift that we get grafted in. I remember talking to someone before who said, I don't really like that. <laughs> they said, it makes me feel less special than Israel. Well, guess what? Too bad. <laughs> Just be grateful that we get brought in. God has called Jew and Gentile to be grafted back in together to the root. Just be thankful that we get to be part of God's perfect plan as he works it out here in the world. And then this third section, God's plan is to show mercy on all. God's plan is that he would show mercy on all. Verse 25, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. We've talked about this. Right now, there's only about 1% to 3% of Jewish people who believe in Jesus, so the partial is about 97 to 99%. It's a very large part. But nevertheless, there is always a remnant. But as he describes it, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God is working out a perfect plan. As the gospel goes to the nations, we know this, some from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Some from every ethne in heaven, will be in heaven, represented in heaven in the end. God, some might ask the question, what is the fullness of the Gentiles? What's that number? And of course, we're not given that number or any sense of what it is other than to go and make disciples. What we are reminded is God is working out his plan. Verse 26, he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. This has been a highly debated passage. I think what he's saying here by all Israel is a reference to the majority of ethnic Israel in time will begin to receive their Messiah. A couple of uh, commentators are helpful here. F.F. Bruce said this, all Israel is a recurring expression in Jewish literature where it need not mean every Jew without a single exception, but Israel as a whole. Or John Stott All Israel must mean the great mass of the Jewish people, comprising both the previously hardened majority, who are now softened to the gospel, and the believing minority, the remnant. It need not mean every single Israelite. So after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then comes a softening to the gospel for Israel. And he quotes a couple of Old Testament passages from Isaiah. The deliverer comes from Zion. Zion, another name for Jerusalem. Or for Israel, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is another name for Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He says in verse 28, in regards to the gospel, yes, they are enemies. They oppose the gospel. They oppose the spread of the Christian faith. They spread the spread of, of the good news. But as regards to election, chosenness, They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. You might say, I don't understand how that can be. How can they be enemies of the gospel and still beloved by their calling? Well, embrace the mystery. And we think of this on a practical level, it makes perfect sense. As we try to share the gospel, yes, Jewish unbelievers, as Gentile unbelievers, oppose that. They don't want to see the gospel spread. But God is not done with ethnic Israel. He's still at work among them. As he concludes this section here, just as we were disobedient and now received mercy, so it will be with Israel. God has consigned all over 
to disobedience that he might in time show mercy upon all. I think what he's getting at here is that we will see, in the end, a large coming to Christ, coming to the Messiah of the Jewish people. And um, you might say, I I don't know how many of that percentage has to be. I, I have no idea. But I think the Bible does give us evidence that eventually, in time, our Jewish friends will begin to really, on a large scale, receive the Messiah. Could that be, and this is Rick Harrington speaking, not, <laughs> could that be one of the reasons why Israel as a nation has been reconstituted, is that we might see a revival break out in the land of Israel. Now, last week, Mitch, you mentioned that we have some disagreements, right? Here's one of them. Here's one of them. One, some people say this is going to be something that happens during some eschatological period of time, like the tribulation or a millennial kingdom. That's when we're going to see this great revival breakout among the Jewish people. Um, my eschatology is pretty simple. Jesus comes back, period. That's it. So when he comes back, it's the resurrection of uh, the, uh, the living and the, de- uh, the dead, and we'll be at the end. You'll judge the living and the dead, that'll be the end. So what I believe is that this great revival will break out in actual history in this time period before Jesus' return. So I've told Mitch, Mitch, I'm more optimistic about your ministry than you are because I think this is going to happen maybe in your lifetime or at least before Jesus returns. We're going to see a mass revival before the end. Hey, that's right. Let's give it. (laughs) God is working out his plan. But notice his point here. In his sovereignty, God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. God saves the same way, Jew and Gentile, and every person. Before you were a Christian, before you received Jesus as your Savior, what were you but a disobedient rebel? And God in his mercy revealed Christ to you. What is Israel right now, at least in the majority, but the same thing we were before we knew Jesus. Even those who have come to faith in Christ when you were very young, well, even as a young child, there's a certain rebelliousness about you, right? Augustine said we don't teach our kids to be selfish. They figure that out all by themselves, right? (laughs) He said even a baby thinks nothing about but itself. That's our natural inclination until we learn to be unselfish in Christ. But God in his mercy saved sinners. He saved me. He saved you. He's saving people all over the world. He's working out his plan. And his plan ends with mercy. God's plan of salvation ends with mercy. His plan is to offer reconciliation to the world. His plan is Jew and Gentile would be grafted in together. And his plan is mercy to all those who trust in Christ in time. You know, we work out our plans. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. Uh, I'll, I'll see, I may come back from the deep south, you know, later on this month and say, I'm never going back there. <laughs> we'll see. Some of you guys are from there and say, oh no, you'll love it, you'll love it. I don't know if I'll make it to this retirement, 100 acres out in Wyoming thing, who knows? God knows. I don't know how our country is going to end up. There are some good signs of things happening, and God might break out with a revival here in the United States. We also see some alarming things, and who knows what God's plan is ultimately. 
for, for our country. But when it comes to God's plan for humanity, it's pretty clear. God begins with a beautiful and perfect universe filled with life. Animal life, insect life, and of course human beings created in his own image as stewards, lords of all creation to care for what he has made and to love one another. Sin enters into our world, creates a dissonance, creates a rebelliousness. The sneaky, slippery serpent enters the garden and puts the thought of treachery in the mind of Eve and Adam willfully disobeys. And for thousands of years, however many thousands, sin and evil and suffering and oppression and death rule this world. Yes, God chooses a people, and in that people he raises up the light of his own word, but eventually he sends his own son in the flesh, like us in every way, yet without sin. And his son lives this perfect and sinless life and uses it not to glorify himself, but to serve. In fact, he uses it to die for us. He rises in triumph over the grave, calls all men and women to believe in him, to receive him as Savior. And those who do enjoy reconciliation, a restored relationship with our God and our Creator. And right now, this gospel, this good news is spreading, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, forward to every continent, every place, every town and village, even every language, every tribe in this planet, as many are coming to know him as Savior. And his plan is ultimately, when the fullness of Gentiles comes in, even Israel will begin to receive their Messiah. And then the resurrection will come. And God will restore all that is broken. And sin and suffering, sickness and Satan, will be no more. God's plan will be fulfilled in his time. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, thank you. Thank you this morning. We're going to deep dive into the scriptures, but a reminder to us that you are in control. That this world is in your hands. And if it's in your hands, Lord, we know it will end with mercy. So help us to be humble, to with gratitude receive this great gift of being grafted in, part of the root part of your people throughout all the ages. Help us, Lord, to proclaim loudly and clearly this reconciliation to the world. Help us to recognize that, yes, we were at one time consigned to disobedience, but now have received mercy. And help us to trust you as we look with hope to the day we will be with you in the great resurrection to come. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen.